John chapter 12, verses 20 through 36. And there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. The same came therefore to Philip, which was of Bethesda of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. Philip cometh and telleth Andrew, and again Andrew and Philip telleth Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life everlasting. If any man serve me, let him follow me, and where I am, there shall also my servants be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause came I unto this honor, this hour. Father, glorify thy name. Then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The people, therefore, that stood by and heard it said that it thundered. Others said, An angel spake to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice came not because of me, but for your sakes. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be drawn, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This he said, signifying what death he should die. The people answered him, We have heard out of the law that Christ abideth forever. And how sayest thou, the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus said unto them, Yet a little while is the light with you. Walk while ye have the light, lest darkness come upon you. For he that walketh in darkness knoweth not whither he goeth. While ye have the light, believe in the light, that ye may be children of the light. These things spake Jesus and departed and did hide himself from them. Our Heavenly Father, we pray Thee now that You would pour out Your Spirit upon us, that we might put the thoughts and cares and concerns and foolishness and vanity of this world aside and think upon Thee and all that Thou hast done to redeem us unto Thyself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning we'll be continuing through uh, the Gospel of John here, and I hope you can appreciate that from this point forward, we're just going to be hearing a lot of what the Lord has to say. So there's going to be a lot of doctrine moving forward. If you happen to have a Bible that has the words Lord's in red, you'll find that as you page towards the cross, there'll be more and more of those red-lettered words in your Bible, and it'll taper down about when he's arrested and brought before um, um, Pilate. But... As I said, moving forward, he's got a lot to say to us, and there's much to be learned here. As a review, you'll recall that we're coming upon the Passover. Jesus has walked down, or I should say, ridden down from the Mount of Olives on the colt, the foal of an ass. He has gone into the temple, and he has cleansed it. And so here we are um, in verse 20, where we see that some Greeks have come to um, Philip and desire to see Jesus. Um, We talked about that last week and what a blessing it is when people come to us and desire to know more about the Lord. It's always a blessing to be able to be what the Bible uses the term soul winners. In in other words, to preach the gospel to people. That's a tremendous blessing uh, and honor for us to be able to serve the Lord in that capacity. 
But we can see here from the context here, and this is something also I mentioned last week, that we see the Gospels bookended with the uh, Gentiles coming to the Lord, you know, after his birth. Those were the wise men. And here we again see Gentiles coming to the Lord, desiring to see him. So if you look at the Greek construct of that sentence here, while they're saying we would see Jesus, they are in fact seeing him. So obviously they don't just want to look at him from a distance. They want to have a desire to understand who he is. They want to perceive with their minds what he is all about, what he is teaching, and to appreciate who he is as a person. Not just to see him as though we might go see, um, let's say, when the president's uh, you know, driving through town, people go there. They can't t- talk to him. He's in a limo. You can't really see him. But you're in the presence of, of the president, if you will, when he's being driven through town. So this is not a matter of curiosity. It's a matter of they want to know who he is. They want more than a superficial understanding and appreciation of who he is. And we have to appreciate that they uh, come to... Um, Philip, uh, with an understanding that perhaps through him they can gain access and come to know who Jesus is. But uh, we who have studied the gospel for any length of time understand that that's not how it works, that we will preach the gospel to somebody, but unless the Holy Ghost, unless God himself impresses upon that individual's hearts who Christ is, they can't can't know him. You have to have the Holy Ghost to understand who um, Christ is. And that, of course, that revelation that, um, that you would receive the Holy Ghost is an act of God himself. God has to pour out his spirit upon you that you might receive the things of the spirit. You know, we've gone to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 a number of times where it speaks about how the natural man can only know the things that are of man because he has the spirit of man in him. The things of God, um, the spiritual things, are foolishness to him that he simply cannot understand them. But they're starting right. They're going to go to somebody that should be able to preach the gospel to them if they know it. But Philip and Andrew don't know it, and they're not going to know it until they, um, Jesus breathes upon them and says, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. We can appreciate the fact that they don't know it because they all desert him um, when he's arrested, and they do not understand things, and, and it's until after he's glorified. And the Bible says that a number of times, that they don't appreciate things. They go to the tomb, and they're like, What happened? Well, it's not brought to their remembrance until the Holy Ghost brings those things to their remembrance. And the same thing is true for all of us. We are ever seeking the Spirit's um, guidance, wisdom, and counsel that we might appreciate the things that are taught in um, the Bible here. So we get to verse 23, and uh, the Lord having an appreciation that uh, Philip and Andrew have come to him, that these Greeks might know him, um, what does he talk about? Well, he, he begins to talk about his glory. And that's what we would share with people is we would share the glory of the Lord. And he says, the hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. So he's going to speak about his death and his resurrection. And we should appreciate that up to this point, um, you'll recall that there have been a number of times when the um, Jewish leadership has tried to take Jesus. They've tried to kill him. They've picked up stones. They've taken him to the brow of a hill and uh, endeavored to throw him off it. And he has always simply walked through the midst of them, as though he were invisible, in, in but he has shared with them, no, that now wasn't that was not the time. Now he's saying, now the hour has come, and so this is the occasion upon which the entire history of all creation revolves, because it's the Lord going to the cross where he's going to deal with the issue of sin. He's going to pour out his Holy Spirit upon people. They're going to be regenerated. They're going to be made into people that are very much like him. They'll be Christians, and they'll be partakers of the divine nature, which is what he's going to talk about here in the very next verse here. So 
up until this point, as I said, he has simply walked through people. Um, but now he's going to be, uh, he's going to allow himself to be bound and led to the slaughter like a lamb. And we've talked about that in the, maybe it's John 19, where they come to arrest him. They ask, um, he says, whom do you seek? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he speaks, he says, I am. And they all fall over backwards. So all the way through this whole process, it should be obvious to to anyone uh, that he let himself be taken. Just like he said, I lay down my life. No one hath the power to take it from me. I have the power to lay it down and to take it up again. Um, in the book of Acts, you'll recall the occasion. This is a different Philip. <laughs> Philip um, goes and he is... Um, returning, and he's going to down to Gaza, which is in the desert, and while he's there, he runs into the Ethiopian eunuch, verse 27 of Acts chapter 28, and he rose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of all her treasure and had come up to Jerusalem for to worship. This Ethiopian eunuch has come up to Jerusalem to worship, and while he's returning home, he's reading from the prophet Isaiah, then the spirit takes Philip, says, go near unto the chariot, which he does. And as Philip comes upon him, he asks him, do you understand what you read? Understandest thou what thou readest? And he says in verse 31, how can I accept a man should guide me? And he desired Philip that he should come up and sit with him. So again, we appreciate the work of the Holy Spirit in terms of revealing truth to people. But God has ordained teachers to help people with that process. So he says, how can I understand? And then he's reading in the scriptures, and this is what I want us to appreciate. The place of the scriptures which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb dumb before his shearers, so opened he not his mouth. So we appreciate that the Ethiopian eunuch is speaking about the occasion when Christ is being led to the cross. And this is where we are. The hour has come where the Lord's going to allow himself to be led to the cross. Verse 33, in his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. And who shall declare his generation, for his life is taken from the earth? And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speaketh the prophet this, of himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. And that's what we preach when we speak about um, whom Christ is and what he has done. We tell what things Jesus has done. And so he preaches the gospel to him. And so here we are in John chapter 12. Jesus is telling them about himself and about what he's going to accomplish and about what he's going to do. He's going to go to the cross. He's going to allow himself to be bound and led like a lamb to the slaughter. So in verse 24, that's what he speaks about. He speaks about his death. He says in verse 24, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall to the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. So he's talking about and he's using things that people ought to be able to appreciate in terms of planting a seed, what happens to the seed, and what is the benefits of planting a seed. In Psalm 19.1, we read that the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. We know that all things were created by God. They were created for him, of him, through him, and to him are all things. He created all things for his pleasure. We should appreciate that God has created everything with an eye that it would glorify him. 
Now, we've talked in the past about the things that are written in Genesis chapter 1, where the Lord talks about the creation, and he uses language which teaches the gospel about what things he has done. And so we should appreciate, just as an earthly author would write a book uh, with meaning in it to teach us about something in particular, so is the Bible. It's always teaching us about Christ, and Christ being the divine um, potter, has shaped things and has made things and created things to also teach us about the gospel. So the fact that a seed has to go into the ground, be planted, and it dies and it brings forth fruit is consistent with what the Lord might do to teach about himself, to teach uh, the gospel. And so in Romans 1, 19 and 20, it talks about that. It says, because there are certain things we can know of God, and God has showed us those things. In verse 20, it says, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So through the creation, God has revealed certain characteristics and attributes of himself that every man should know. Nobody has an excuse not to understand these things. So God has ordained that a seed would be planted and it would die and it would bring forth uh, fruit. This is the methodology by which um, plants are um, regenerated and reproduced. And in Genesis chapter 1, it tells us many times that like kind bears like kind. Apple seeds produce apple trees, which produce apples, and orange seeds produce orange trees, which produce oranges. God uses an example here which ought to be clearly understood. And the Bible refers to Christ himself as a seed. That's Galatians chapter 3, 16. So the corn of wheat here, that's the um, language um, in 1611 they use for a grain or for a seed. So if you don't plant a seed, leave it on the shelf, it abides alone all by itself. There's nothing difficult to understand about that. If you plant it, the seed dies and it brings forth much fruit, like itself. And so Christ here obviously is speaking about himself. He's speaking about his death. He likens himself unto a grain of wheat that is planted and dies, and in so doing brings forth much fruit. He's speaking of his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And the fruit that it bears will be what? It will be like him, because like kind begets like kind principle set up in Genesis chapter 1. So Christians, the fruit of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection are like Christ. We are partakers of the divine nature. And there's much to be said in the scripture about the process by which we are conformed to his image. Remember back in Genesis chapter 1, maybe around verse 24, he talks about um, the purpose is to create men in the image and likeness of God. This is part of that process here, and so he's using other language to help us appreciate that. He's going to be planted, he's going to die, and when he's resurrected, he's going to bring forth much fruit that are like himself. In verse 25, now he's talking about other people, and so we had our deacon this morning read from 1 Corinthians chapter 15 about, guess what, you and I are going into the grave too. Our flesh goes into the grave, the natural man is, goes into the grave, and the glorified body comes out of the grave this we do with Christ. Romans chapter 6 speaks about that in terms of uh, our regeneration, but also in terms of our death and our resurrection with our glorified bodies, that that process means the flesh is going to the grave and the um, glorified body, the spiritual body, will, will come out of the grave. 
So in verse 25, he speaks about uh, he that loves his life shall lose it. And he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life um, eternal. Now, I think we could all understand this. Superficially, it's a very easy thing to understand. That if you love your life here and now, uh, you obviously have no understanding of what the Lord has prepared for those whom he loves. That's also in that section in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Where it says in verses 9 and 10 of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, But as it is written, I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. Now that's where a lot of people stop. Verse 10, But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. So these people do not have that vision. God has not revealed it to them because it's conditional here upon those whom that the Lord loves. If the Lord doesn't love you, he's not going to reveal these truths to you. So these people that love their life, they're going to lose it because it's obvious that they have not been uh, regenerated. They love their flesh and they love fulfilling and satiating the pleasures of the the flesh. They um, love... Uh, what activities that they can do in this world that brings them some form of satisfaction, and they think that this is all there is. They love the world, and they love the things that are in the world, which First John chapter 2 says that ought not to be. That is not the fruit of a Christian life in terms of what your affections would be. And first in John chapter 2, verse 15, it continues, If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. No love of the Father in you, then no revelation about what God has prepared for those whom he loves. These people neither love the Father nor are loved by the Father. Verse 16, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but it is of the world. And so what is manifest in their life are the fruits of the flesh. Verse 17, and the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. These people that love their lives and love the things of this world have no desire for an eternal relationship with God. They are carnally minded. In Romans chapter 8, verses 6 through 8, it speaks about that. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is at enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. So people that are seeking the pleasures of this world are in the flesh. They cannot please God. Their minds are at enmity with God. As a matter of fact, in John here, the Lord's going to later teach us very simply that men hate God. It's as simple as that. Men hate God and they hate um, Jesus because God sent him. And they're going to hate you and me too, whom Christ sends out into the world to preach the gospel. So for these people, it can truly be said that their best life is now. And they uh, would agree to that. They think that's the case too. And that is a tragic, satanic lie for anybody that would buy that book, Your Best Life Now, by Joel Osteen. If this is your best life now, then you have not been regenerated and you are ignorant of the things that God has prepared for those whom he loves. And so the Lord sets that before us here. He basically says, hey, if you love your life, you're going to lose it, meaning in an eternal context. 
If you love the things of this world, then, then you have nothing of the next world. Um, but if you hate your life in this world, if you hate your life in this world, then what it's saying is you're loving the Lord. You have a relationship with the Lord, and you shall keep your life eternally. That's in verse um, 25. Shall keep, his, shall keep it unto eternal. So if you love the Lord, you will have eternal life. Verse 26, again, he says, If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servants be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. Well, how can you serve the Lord if, you have a, if you're carnally minded and you're, if you're at enmity with him? You can't serve him and you won't serve him. That's why I read Romans chapter 8 there. The carnal mind is at enmity with God. It is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. The carnal mind has no desire to please the Lord. It has no desire to uh, obey him and indeed cannot obey the Lord. How can you be the Lord's servant if you're at enmity with him? Well, you can't be. And so the Lord is setting this uh, up here about uh, in terms of serving him. If you're going to serve him, well, of course he's going to be with you because his spirit's going to be in your heart. You will have had your stony heart taken out and you will have a heart of flesh. And so in Ezekiel chapter 36... Verses 22 through 27, the Lord sets this before us here. He talks about what he's going to do. He says, I will take you from among the heathen, meaning he's talking about spiritual Israel. He's going to take them out of the Israelites, national Israelites, and he's going to take them from all over the world. And indeed here, this section opens up with Greeks coming to the Lord. He will gather you out of all countries and will bring you into your own land. He's speaking of the new heaven and the new earth. Then will I sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your filthiness, and from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and ye shall keep my judgments and do them. In other words, you'll be the servants of the Lord. You'll do that because he's going to put his spirit in us, which will work in us to will and to do of his good pleasure. We are his workmanship created unto um, good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So we can do that. And so it says here that if we are his servants, um, he'll be with us. Well, because he's actually going to be in us. And it says here, him will my father honor. Well, obviously the father will honor us, because when he looks at us, what does he see? He sees his son, Jesus, who is ever obedient. And so we should always appreciate that when the Lord looks upon us in whom Christ dwelleth, he looks upon us with the exact same love and approbation and approval that he looks upon himself of whom Christ is one with the Father. So again, we're appreciating that he's speaking about the fruits that will come out of him going into the earth and dying and then um, being uh, Resurrected. So in verse 27, he says, Now is my soul troubled. Again, speaking of the cross. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this cause came I unto this hour. His soul is troubled. The sins of the saints are being about to be imputed to him. Those would be everybody for whom the Lord has chosen from eternity past. He's going to have to bear that upon himself. Respecting the righteousness of God, this is a true saying, God will judge sin everywhere he finds it 
including if he finds it in himself. God will judge sin everywhere he finds it, including if he finds it in himself. And so we know in 2 Corinthians 5.21 it says, For God hath made him sin, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So the sins of, of all of the saints are being held to his account. They're being imputed to him. And obviously that's going to be very troubling for he who knew no sin to be made sin. It's going to be uh, most grievous. Uh, not just because of the separation with the Father that he speaks about when he's on the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Uh, not just because the Father is going to pour the wrath upon his wrath upon him, um, but because he's actually going to bear the guilt as though he'd committed the sins himself. That's from Isaiah 53 about him bearing our guilt. We are innocent because he is judged as though he himself committed the sins. He bears the burden of guilt. God is not unjust. He's not going to punish the guiltless. And he doesn't let the guilty go free. Therefore, the guilt goes with our sins to him. And so this is going to be very troubling for him. And so he asks the question, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this cause came I unto this hour. In Psalm chapter 22, um, verses 7 and it's, it speaks about this idea of being on the cross and what, what shall take place. He says, all that see me, laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip, they shake their heads, saying, and there's the imagery of people walking around the cross when Jesus is up on the cross. They say, verse 8, he trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. In other words, come down from the cross. Save yourself. If you're truly the Son of God, if God really does love you, if He really is your Savior, then He would save you right now. Come on, come down right now. In Matthew 27, we see that expanded a little bit in terms of what the people are actually doing. This is from Matthew 27, verses 42 through 44. The people are going around Him. The chief priests are mocking Him. The scribes and the elders said, quote, verse 42, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. The thieves also, which were crucified with him, cast the same in his teeth. So he's surrounded by these people that are telling him to come down now. Well, you know, if you would prove to us, by coming down from the cross right now, we would believe you. What would have happened if Christ had come down from the cross now? Then he would not have paid for our sins, and there'd be no salvation. So this was a tremendous temptation thrown up in his, cast in his teeth that he might come down now to prove that he was God. But here's the grievous thing about it. He died on the cross, and when he came from the grave, they wouldn't believe him then. They certainly would not have believed him if he had come down from the cross at that time. Um, so the Lord here says, no, this is the reason I came. I'm not going to ask the Father to um, save me from this hour, to take me from what I have come to do, what we agree needs to be done. For this cause came I unto this hour. This is the reason I've come to this earth. I've come to this earth to save people from their sins. So in verse 28, he says, Father, glorify thy name. Then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The people, therefore, that stood by and heard it, and said it thundered, others said, an angel spake to him. And Jesus answered and said, This voice came not because of me, 
but for your sakes. So again, we appreciate here that the Lord says things and the Father says things for the benefit of all of those that are up around him. And so he says, glorify thy name. Well, what is the name of the Lord? God's got lots of names. Perhaps you've even seen one of those posters that has all of the names of God written throughout Scripture. There's a lot of names. But let me share you one in particular that is above any other name. A name has been given to him that is above any other name. And that's the name of Jesus. He is the Almighty. He has a name that has been given above all other names. Scripture tells us that he is the brightness of God's glory. His person is the expressed image of God. In John chapter 1, it uses the name, it uses the language logos. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word is God. Logos is a word used to communicate something, and God has communicated himself, he has communicated his characteristics and his attributes through Christ, because Christ is God. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So God says, hey, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Well, in the context of John here, in John chapter 11 and 12, in John chapter 11, we have the resurrection of um, Lazarus. And the Lord says, this was all took place um, that you would understand that I am the resurrection and the life. In John chapter 11, verse 4, which I'm going to read, we talked about that before. When Jesus heard that, in other words, heard that Lazarus had been dead, he said, this sickness is not unto death but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. So what he's saying is that um, Lazarus has not died with the intent that it's going to terminate in his death. That's not the end of this. That's not how this is going to end up. This is going to end up with me being glorified, and that's the purpose of this whole thing. But I want you to take about six steps, seven steps, seven steps back from Scripture and think about this. The fall of man... The end result of that is not the death of man. The end of that is the glorification of Christ. And that glorification comes through our regeneration where certain men are made in the image and likeness of Christ. Um, I've shared that with us in the past, that Adam was not in the image and likeness of God, but the regenerated Christian is in the image and likeness of Christ. The end point of Adam's uh, transgression was not his death. The end point is the glorification of God through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son by which people are regenerated, partakers of the divine nature, and made in the image and likeness of God. So from that verse, we can glean uh, that big picture truth, as he says of Lazarus. The same thing is true of, of um, certain men. So... That's in verse 4 of John chapter 11. And then over in verse 40, he says, speaking of the resurrection, Jesus says, Said I not unto thee that if thou wouldest believe, thou shouldest see the glory of God. And they do see it when he calls forth Lazarus from the grave. Now the Lord says, well, I'm going to glorify your name again. Well, how will he do that? When Christ comes from the grave, that's when he'll glorify him again. So all of this is set before us here that we would appreciate um, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ because when he is resurrected, it demonstrates his power over all principalities and powers. It says in Colossians 2.15 that he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them. He triumphed over all principalities and powers. 
He triumphed over Satan. Certainly, in uh, Ephesians 6.12, we read about us not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Christ triumphed over all of them. They're all subordinate to Satan, who's subordinate to God. And Christ triumphed over all of them. Christ triumphed over the world. Christ triumphed over sin and over death. He triumphed over all things. So indeed, he was glorified in that process here. Now again, the fact that we can hear um, what the Lord says, the Father says in respect to what Christ um, says, we again have to appreciate that he is united with his Father in the work that's going to be accomplished, and they are united in their will. Just as we saw in uh, John chapter 11, verse 41, about um, him saying, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me, and I knew that thou heardest me always because of the people which stand by. I said it, that they might believe that thou hast sent me. Um, people should appreciate the unity between the Father and the Son. And so what we read about in John chapter 11, that the people would appreciate that God has sent Christ. They would appreciate it also again here that God is very much uh, involved with the work. God the Father is very much involved with the work of God the Son. So in verse 31 here, he talks about Satan being cast out. He says, now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. God judges the world in um, um, Gen uh, Genesis, excuse me, Genesis chapter 3, verse 17. It speaks about how God has cursed the earth for Adam's sake. Because of Adam's sin, the earth itself has been cursed. We should appreciate that as people who sin, sin taints everything. It's like a, a, a smoky fire has gone off in one place of the house and the rest of the house suffers the damage because of smoke. This whole planet has been cursed by God and so he's going to judge everything here. And specifically he talks about Satan himself being cast out. And this is going to happen through the cross. And so uh, Satan is, is cast out. Um, we know that the name Satan means adversary. He opposes all that is called God and he opposes the, the saints. The word devil means the accuser, and that language comes up in the book of Revelation. But we should appreciate in particular, he says that he is going to destroy he who has the power of death. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, he says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, that would be you and me, he also, that would be Christ himself, Likewise, took part of the same, that through death, through death, he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. Through the cross and through the death of Christ, he's going to destroy Satan, the devil, who has the power of death. Verse 15, and deliver them, that would be us, who through fear were all their lifetime subject to bondage of fear of death. People are in bondage to fear of death. And that's the way we used to be. We were afraid of death. Men harbor in their hearts uh, a fear um, of death because when they go to the grave, then they will face judgment. And so you have lots of people that spend all their money trying to stay alive as long as they can so they don't have to face God's judgment. 
Satan knows that. And he says, yea, that all that a man hath will he say, uh, give to save his skin. Skin for skin, yea, all that a man hath will he give to save his skin. And that's why this pandemic is so successful in terms of its delusion, because it plays on um, man's fear of death and um, his deceivability and the covetous nature. There's just a lot of things that come together with this pandemic that are working very well uh, for Satan's um, a benefit, if I can use that language. Um, all that a man hath will he give to save his life, to save his skin. Satan, we know, is a liar and a murderer from the beginning, and that's what he does. He deceives people, he murders them, he lies to them. And so um, he's certainly doing that today. In Luke chapter 10, verse 18, the Lord says, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. And so in Revelation chapter 12, we read about this war that took place in heaven, um, I would say coincidental with the cross, and as a result of it, Satan was cast down to the earth here. In verse 10 of Revelation 12, and it says, And I heard a loud, loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. Satan formally would accuse us before the Father. We see him doing that with respect to Job in Job 1 and 2. And we see him doing that in Zechariah chapter 3, where he's accusing the Lord about Joshua the high priest. Um, but he does not do that anymore. He's lost his place there. He's been cast out. And it says in verse 11, and they, that would be the saints, overcame him, overcame Satan, overcame his accusations, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto death, as contrasted with the people here that love their lives unto the death, where the Lord says they shall have, they shall lose their lives eternally. So Satan has been cast out. We overcome his accusations by pointing to our high priest, by pointing to the sacrifice, by pointing to Christ, who will speak on our behalf, and the things that he has accomplished. He has paid for our sins. He has borne our iniquities upon himself. We also see in Scripture, and so I'm kind of giving you a, a little bit more information about Satan here, is that him being cast out. Um, while there's, we think of a, him physically being cast out of heaven, which he was, but he is on this earth uh, stirring things up, and he's, and he's active. But you have to think of him as like a, a lion on a leash. He goes about like a lion, uh, a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He is bound by Christ. He can only do so much. He can never do anything that God um, would not let him do. Um, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 29, Satan is compared to a strong man. And it says in verse 29 of Matthew 12, the Lord says, or how else can one enter into a strong man's house, that would be this world here, and spoil his goods, except he first bind the strong man, and then he will spoil his house. So being cast out also in this context here means he's bound. Satan is bound by Christ. And so in using the um, analogy here that the Lord has set before us, it's like going into a house where there's a strong man and you 
put handcuffs on them. You bind them. And then you go through the house and you take whatever it is that you want. And that's what the Lord does. I want you. You're my, uh, one of my children. I want you. You're one of my children. That's what the Lord does. He goes through this world and he knows whom uh, he has died for. He has known them from before the foundation of the world. And he says, you're mine, you're mine, you're mine, and you're mine. And he takes them unto himself. So he, he is spoiling this strong man's house, Satan's house. So Satan is bound, and you read about that in Revelation chapter 20, about Satan being bound. And uh, he's been bound for a period of time, and that period of time began at the cross. And so that thousand years goes from the cross to the second coming of Christ. The number thousand is representative of a period of time. And then in Revelation 20, verses 7 and 8, it talks about him um, being loosed and going out to deceive uh, the nations, which I think is a time where we are living in. So God is always sovereign over everything. And Satan, whether he knows it or not, he does those things which work together for the good of all of these saints uh, because God uses him towards his own ends. And so it says here that he is cast out. The Lord is restraining him after the cross to a greater degree, apparently, than he was restrained before the cross. Verses 32 and 33, he talks here about, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all unto me, all men unto me. Um, in order for God to do that, being lifted up on the cross, he's obviously talking about his death and his resurrection, about this, he's going to be glorified here. But in order for him to draw men unto himself, he's going to have to overcome the enmity of man. This is going to require a conversion in an individual's heart. He uses this language here, I will draw all men unto myself. And this is Jesus speaking. Keep that in mind. Jesus is saying, I will draw all men to myself. What he means is men from every um, nation, kindred, tribe, and tongue. He's not going to draw every human being to him. That should be obvious to all of us here, but people from every nation, kindred, tribe, and tongue. But to draw, that word in the Greek means to draw forcibly. Forcibly. You'll see the word draw used, for example, remember at the wedding of Cana when they drew water, uh, drew wine out of the pot. Well, that's not very difficult to do. Um, we see the word again in John chapter 21, verse 6, when the disciples are uh, fishing unsuccessfully and the Lord is on the shore. And it talks about, the Lord says unto them, cast the net on the right side of the ship and ye shall find. Why would they find it on the right side of the ship? That's where the sheep are. The goats are on the left side of the sheep. So cast it on the right side of the ship, and they cast, therefore, and now they were not able to draw it for the multitude of the fish. They lack the strength to draw all of those fish, which obviously represent Christians. They're bound in that, the net of the gospel, and they're unable to draw it by virtue of its, uh, its fullness. Get down to verse 11 of John 21. And then it talks about um, Peter, you know, he swims to the shore, and it says here, and he drew the net to land full of great fishes, 153, and for all there were so many, yet was not the net broken. Obviously it requires great strength, um, and it's with difficulty he draws those fish in. So that's the language that we should appreciate when God draws men to himself. <laughs> um, we go kicking and screaming until he changes our hearts. And so... Um, that same language is used in John chapter 6, verse 44. In John 6, 44, the Lord says, No man can come to me, Jesus speaking, can't come to Jesus except the Father which hath sent me. Draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. So in John 6, 44, God is drawing. In John 12 here, 
um, verse 32, Jesus is the one drawing. So again, we appreciate that God and Jesus are one in purpose, one in will, and one in the work that they are accomplishing in terms of regenerating people in the image and likeness of the Son of God. Um, in verse 43, this generates a question. In verse 33, it says he's speaking of the cross, obviously, because it says here that it's signifying what death that he should die. In verse 34, the Lord says, we have, people say, uh, the people answered him, we have heard out of the law that Christ abideth forever. And how sayest thou, the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So obviously this generates some confusion. Well, I thought you said you were the Christ. Christ lives forever. Now you're talking about your death. You say you're the Son of Man. Well, who's the Son of Man? How does this all work itself out? I mean, we know about in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, where it talks about how the Christ will rule and reign forever. It says, of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgments and with justice from henceforth, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. How is Christ going to live forever? And you're telling me you're going to the cross. How does that work out? And so that certainly is a major confusion, even to this day, amongst the, uh, the Jewish people. How is Christ eternal, and yet he goes to the cross and he dies? Well, that would have to do certainly uh, with the resurrection. And so that is something that they fail to understand. Um, but we understand how the Lord uh, did that because he has shared it with us through his, his Holy Spirit. In verses 35 through 36, um, the Lord speaks of himself as the light of the world. Then Jesus saith unto them, Yet a little while is the light with you. Walk while ye have the light, lest the darkness come upon you. For he that walketh in darkness knoweth not whither he goeth. While ye yet have the light, believe in the light, that ye may be the children of light. These things spake Jesus and departed and did hide himself from them. This is kind of a, well, he's speaking about what's going to happen. And uh, it's kind of hard to receive this because we have to appreciate when you have an opportunity, you need to take advantage of that opportunity because you won't always have it with you. And so he's talking about himself. He himself is the light of the world. And while I'm here, you need to listen to what I'm telling you you need to believe the things that I'm telling you. I've told you to believe the works. If you don't believe what I'm saying, believe what the works, because they do testify of me. You need to believe the testimony of all the law and the prophets, because all the law and the prophets testify of me. Um, and you need to do this while I'm here with you, because when I'm not here with you, really that becomes that much more difficult for them to do. In Psalm chapter 36, verse 9, in Psalm 36, 9, the Lord says, For with thee is the fountain of life. Christ himself is the fountain of life. In thy light shall we see light. In other words, we need the light of Christ to see Christ. We need the revelation that he gives us to see him. And so here he's saying, hey, I'm with you now. I am that light. You can see all of these things that I have done. You ought to be able to appreciate who I am. I've told you who I am. The prophets have told you who I am. And as I shared with us in the past, I, you know, I've told you when I'm coming, where I'm coming, what I'm going to do, um, and all the things that will happen uh, while I'm here. Um, you need to believe those things. Um, because the day is coming when I'm going to leave you, and you will not have my light anymore. 
until, of course, he pours out his Holy Ghost. Um, but there's a time there when that's not going to be there. Uh, so to underscore this truth and to help them to appreciate it, he leaves them and he hides himself from them. And I would hope they could appreciate, just as if it were um, in the depth of the darkest of night, when you watch a light walk away from you, you can appreciate the imagery that as that light goes further away, then you are slowly surrounded by darkness and eventually you're wholly engulfed in, in darkness. Um, about a month or so ago, my grandson and I went to a cave and one of the things they like to do when you're in a cave is they like to turn out all the lights. And that's about as dark as any place could ever be on the planet when you're in a cave. And so, so it is in this world, in a spiritual context, that light was going to go away and they would be left in spiritual uh, darkness. Um, and so that's what he does. It says here, these things spake Jesus and departed and he did hide themselves from them. There will come a time, big picture again, seven steps back. There's going to come a time when there is time no more. Revelation chapter 10 speaks about that, that there's time no more, when it's over, when God will have removed all of his people and we are said to be the lights, plural, small l, of the world. God's light on this world shines in this world through his Christian witnesses who have the Holy Spirit in them. Just like the moon reflects the light of the sun, so too do Christians reflect the light of Christ. He is the source of light. It doesn't come from within us. We are not the generators of the light. We, are, um, we have received his light, and then uh, people um, receive what light that we share with them. If the sun were to go out, so would the moon. You mean the moon can go away and you still have the sun. But when the sun, uh, if and when the sun were to stop shining, then there would be no light for the moon to reflect to us. So um, the admonition to people is, you know, now is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. So you need to believe when the gospel is presented to you because as the Lord directed the disciples, you go into a city, if they will not receive the gospel, what do you do? You cast the, you brush the dust off your feet and you go to the next place. So our prayer would certainly be that when we do that, that we would have planted seeds and that God will impress it upon their hearts. Um, but of a truth, there will come a time when time is no more and there will be no opportunity for these people to hear and receive the gospel. Now, I, I share that with us. You know, we always appreciate the sovereignty of God and next week it's going to come up with respect to the, uh, I believe it will come up next week about the responsibility of man. Those are always true responsibility of man balanced with the sovereignty of God. Men are responsible to hear and receive the gospel and believe on the truths that God has shared with them. These people that walked with Christ and saw the things that he did have no excuse, no excuse to not believe the things that they saw. He told them who he was. He demonstrated it. What more could he do than to, than to die and to raise himself from the grave? There was, there was nothing, and, he, and they, they demanded that sign. <laughs> he said, no, you can't have it, and then he gives it to them anyway, the sign of Jonah. He said, that sign you, you'll, you'll have, and they still didn't believe it. So as we go out in the world and we witness with our families, we pray to them that they will receive the gospel, they'll see the light, they'll hear it, and they'll believe on it unto life everlasting. And so I'll close with that. Amen.